Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Forward. It's the one move we're all ready to take. And at the Audi Moving Forward sales event, we're ready to help you on that journey. All Audi dealerships are now open with tailored solutions to suit your individual needs, like the Audi A6 Saloon, with PCP finance from only €499 per month. Now is the time to make an appointment. Now is the time to start moving forward. Audi. Vorsprung durch Technik. Terms and conditions apply. feel like this episode is cursed <laughs> this is now the third time i'm just going to keep my hands crossed on my chest sure because we don't have zane today <laughs> i'm trying to do this so hard and i don't i hope this is working yay okay hi ellen you're back in the pod loft i'm back in the pod loft Woo! back and better than ever back and better than ever um so sorry about our technical difficulties ellen moved into state we have to deal yeah, it turns out that, you know, recording a podcast on thousands and thousands of dollars worth of sound equipment that Zane has, a little, little different to me <laughs> recording into my $80 microphone that I bought from JJ's. Woo! JJ's? JJ's. JB, JB Hi-Fi. Hi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> VQ. Super weird. Um, well, I hope you're all doing stunning. Yes. Um, we have a shout out. Yes. Um, our new Patreon is... Anne, I almost called you Kate again, Anne. I'm so sorry. Anne, thank you so much for joining us in our Mitlu family. Um, if you want to support our Patreon, the links will be in the show notes. Uh, we have different tiers of uh, Patreon levels, I guess, and you can suggest content. You can get a shout out from us. Like there are many, many benefits. Um, we also have merch on Public. if you would be interested in purchasing some. We do have some new shirts that are coming out that are going to be very, very stunning which is very, very cool. That's our guarantee. That's our guarantee. Stunning or your money back. Stunning or your money back. So sorry. Um, So this is coming out tomorrow. Yes. So we're recording this Thursday. It's coming out tomorrow and Friday. Um, We also have a bonus episode coming out on Monday. We bonus. We bonus. uh, Just for apologies for the uh, technical difficulties. Um, And then we have one more case in Tasmania and then we're on to South Australia. We're very excited. Whoop, 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 Get back whoop. to the mainland. It's going to be stunning. So if you have any cases that you would like us to look at in the South Australian 
uh, area of the country. I don't know. I don't know what that I was saying. I think I'm just really freaking out. It's recording. I'm just freaking out. I mean, Um, I'm sure it's going to be fine. I hope so. If not, we'll just try and record this for a fourth time. Fourth time. time. This episode is so cursed. This better be like a banger. It better be. This better be like the best episode of all time. The best banger episode I know it's not because I wrote it. But oh, <laughs> come on. Everybody likes your episodes. They like your episodes more than mine. So, yeah, if you have any suggestions that you would like us to do for South Australia, please feel free to send us an email at murderintheLandofOz at gmail.com. You can also get in contact on Facebook or become a Patreon and send us a message. Anything of your choosing. Contact us any way you like. Please and thank you. Okay, so um, Ellen, what is our episode today? Our episode today is a very interesting – it's an old-timey case again – we, we all know that I love my... We love old-timey. Old-timey. Um, look, old-timey cases are good because, like, you can really say whatever you want. What's he going to do? You know? They're dead. They're dead. They're long dead. <laughs> so this is a very interesting case. Um, it's been covered a lot in various forms of media, and it is the story of a wee man named Alexander Pierce. Alexander Pierce! Alexander Pierce! We oh, are well, waiting. We. <laughs> <laughs> no. Pod love for you. Anyway, that was bad. Okay, so Alexander Pierce was born in 1790 in County Monaghan in Ireland, and he was transported. He was a convict, obviously. He was transported to Australia in 1819 for the theft of six pairs of shoes. What do you need with six pairs of shoes? Well, the the, the thing is, is that he was probably like stealing shoes to like sell on. He wasn't like some peasant in dire need of shoes. He was like a professional shoe thief, thief, I guess. All right. Maybe. We don't really know. But he stole six pairs of shoes. Why not? Um, yeah. So, yeah, not a lot is known about him prior to transportation, probably because he didn't do anything exciting or fun um, <laughs> until he That's wound shame. up in Australia. Such a shame. He's just being, you know, a miserable Irish peasant like everybody else was back in the day. Oh, same. Same. What a mood. mood. <laughs> still a miserable <laughs> Irish peasant. Still miserable and still Irish. Um. So he would have like travelled around Ireland looking for work for a bit and also getting a bit of cash on the side through committing minor crimes like we all do. So he arrived in what was then Port Jackson, New Holland, but is now known as Sydney Harbour, Australia on the 27th of January, 1820 off the ship, the Castle Forbes. So the journey took 116 days. That's too many days. Far too many days. It's just not worth it. Um, And it was quite eventful. So most of the passengers had like, chronic severe seasickness um which i assume just happened on all ships all the time i don't know why it was noted that but people just got mad seasick (laughs) um mad seasick so seasick and there was like crazy storms crazy winds crazy weather in general especially like sailing down you know once you get to the south part of australia it's the weather is quite rocky it's quite rocky it's quite rocky and wild and also there was a uh attempted mutiny from a bunch of soldiers that were also on the boat. They were like, we're going to mutiny. And then they didn't. But I guess they were just frustrated for the rest of the trip. I don't know. So the ship stayed in Port Jackson for two weeks to relieve themselves of the most sick prisoners. And then the rest of the convicts were transferred to another ship, the Prince Regent, and headed on down to Van Diemen's Land, arriving in Hobart Town on the 28th of February, 1820. So the convicts were taken from the ship. They had all their information, like their height and hair colour and stuff recorded. And then they were sent to camp in the jail on the corner of Murray and Macquarie Streets. They were assigned their convict numbers. Pierce was number 102. And those who seemed like they would be good laborers were selected from among the ranks. So being a convict. Convict? convict? Being a convict. convict. <laughs> Love that. Gonna steal that. Very fancy. 
being a convict in Hobart at this time didn't mean that you like stayed in prison the whole time. So that kind of penal colony system didn't exist on the island yet. So convicts were kind of free-ish. They lived in their own usually pretty shitty dwellings and they worked either for the government doing hard labour jobs or were assigned to a free settler to do hard labour for him. They had most of Saturday and Sunday off and they could work on the weekends if need be, although the usual day off activities included getting drunk and committing petty crimes. Hard same. So... (laughs) Pierce was first assigned to a man named John Bellinger who had a farm and he worked for him for about nine months before being sent back to work for the government gang. And then he was assigned to a William Scattergood of New Norfolk and he worked for him for a while as a shepherd. So one day while he was shepherding for old mate Scattergood, um, he legged it essentially. (laughs) See ya. (laughs) He was like standing there in a field like with his shepherd's hook maybe. I don't know if they actually use that or if that's just a Jesus thing. Standing there with his (laughs) shepherd's hook overseeing his flock and was like, you know what? There is literally nothing stopping me from escaping right now. So I'm going to escape. I'm going to escape. See you later, sheep. So he ran off into the wilderness. Why not? Why not? not? I mean, why wouldn't you? If it's shepherding or living in the wild wilderness, I don't know. I'd actually probably choose the shepherding. Um, So it was pretty easy for prisoners to abscond due to the fact that, you know, there was not very many settlements in Tasmania at the time and the majority of the state was just wilderness that was pretty easy to disappear into. So convicts ran off semi-regularly and occasionally they would like meet up in the woods and be like, oh, are you an escape convict? I'm an escape convict. Do you, how would you feel about forming a cool bushranger gang? Oh, no. Don't worry, there's not there's not a lot of bush ranging in this episode. <laughs> Jess is like one leg out the door. Um, so Pierce met up with four other convicts who had escaped from the jail, um, James Letting, Thomas Lawton, Joseph Saunders and Thomas Atkinson. They spent a wee bit of time stealing sheep and killing kangaroos and stuff for food while bailing up the odd traveller or farmer for cash and other goods. Um, they were on the run for about three months and during this time Pierce started learning and teaching himself some survival skills essentially, some real like Bear grills shit like <laughs> how to like cut open a kangaroo so you can sleep inside it when it's cold and stuff. No, I'm joking. Just normal bush ranger stuff like, I don't know, eating what nuts you can eat and whatever. Don't go <laughs> eating nuts you can't eat. Yep, that's rule number one of the wilderness. Don't go eating random nuts. Um, <laughs> so as I said, they were on the run for about three months um, but don't think that the reason they were gone for such a long time was because they were like master criminals evading the police. The truth was is that there really wasn't a lot of benefit going to chase after escaped convicts. There wasn't a lot of soldiers or policemen in Hobart at the time and capturing the odd convict was not necessarily priority number one. They were only captured because they surrendered to an amnesty that was posted in March of 1821 that stated that convicts who were out bush could come back no harm, no foul as long as they hadn't killed anyone. So Pierce and the gang were probably just sick of eating nothing but sheep and kangaroo and eager to get back into town and back on the grog. So they surrendered in grog. early. Grog. Woo. Woo. <laughs> take, a, take a sip of your grog every time we say grog in this episode. Grog. <laughs> grog. Um, so they surrendered in early May 1821 and Pierce went back to the gang for a time uh, and worked for a few days but was arrested essentially a week later on the 18th of May, 1821, on the heinous charge of embezzling two turkeys and three ducks. 
from two ex-convicts who own a farm in Coal River. Oh, what's you in for? Embezzling a turkey. I embezzled and some ducks. Don't forget the ducks. <laughs> sorry. The ducks always get they forgotten They always get forgotten. I'm so, so sorry. Yeah, so I assume embezzling just means stealing and he didn't, you know, commit some horrible financial crime against these turkeys and ducks. So Pierce was sent to, sentenced to 50 lashes, 14 days of hard labour and confinement to the watch house at night. He managed to stay out of trouble until the 17th of September when he was up for a charge of being drunk and disorderly. <sighs> Same. Me in the Valley on a Friday night. Um, he was sentenced- Us on Saturday night. <laughs> oh, it's going to be so- No, not strictly at the wedding. Afterwards. <laughs> After the wedding. We're going to get- Mitlu meet up. Woo! Let's not. Um- <laughs> So he was sentenced to 25 lashes and then three days later, Pierce stole a wheelbarrow with the intention of selling it to buy grog. 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 Um, And he was sentenced again to 50 lashes and six months hard labour. So he worked in the government gang again for the time, but he didn't end up finishing his sentence. In March of 1822, Pierce was given a two-pound money order by a man named Constable Williams to pay him for some reaping that he had done for a merchant named Mr. Fryett. So Pierce copied the money order and presented both the real money order and the fake money order to Fryatt's wife, who presumably was illiterate and couldn't tell the difference from the real from the fake. Taking advantage of an illiterate woman. You bastard. First embezzling a turkey, now, now this. this. When will the horrors cease? <laughs> um, so she ended up giving Pierce four pounds. The fraud was discovered pretty quickly, and when Pierce heard that Mr. Fryatt was out looking for him, he did what any sane man would do and nipped back off into the bush. Goodbye. So by 8th of May, 1822, a £70 reward was offered in the Hobart Town Gazette for a number of convicts, including Alexander Pierce, who had all absconded. £10 would be given per man brought back to the jail in Hobart Town. So the seven men had all absconded at different times and presumably all ran into each other living like vagrants in the bush and thought, hey, lads, why don't we start a wee gang? Lads, lads, lads. Lads, lads, lads. Boys, 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 boys. Lads camping trip. The boys. We're going on a lads trip. In the wilderness of Tasmania. The boys, boys, boys. We go eat some wallabies. <laughs> it's just like guys going to music festivals. Yeah. They're all just wearing like singlets with like no side bits. Oh my. I find them so unattractive. I think everybody does. I don't think they do it. Do they? They n- can't do it to attract women because that's like, oh, nipple. Cute. I find a guy's like rib side rib cage part just, just to be like the most real gets part. me going. Oof. 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 Anyway, let's Big calm oof. down. <laughs> so, <laughs> Pierce and the lads um, lived in the bush for a couple she of weeks. She did a shaka hand sign. <laughs> Before Pierce alone was captured in July of 1822. He was tried for absconding and forgery, and for some reason he pleaded guilty to absconding and not guilty for forgery. Don't know what the logic was there. He was found guilty of both charges and this time they were going to put Pierce somewhere where he could not run from. Mm-mm. So he was sentenced to remand on the newly constructed penal colony of Macquarie Harbour for the rest of his sentence. So the governor, of Van, the governor of Van Diemen's Land, Governor Sorrell, had been faced with the question of what to do with recidivist convicts like Pierce for some time. He had written to the Governor General Macquarie and told him of the need for a real penal colony in Van Diemen's Land. Macquarie consented and the colony was established on the island's wild west. There's a lot of old timey like politics and stuff that was involved in the creation of the, if you're interested in that, you can Google it. (laughs) I sure wasn't. Um, (laughs) 
So the entrance to Macquarie Harbour is known as Hell's Gates. Oh, this is a really cooked – this is the really cooked place, isn't it? It's it's well cooked. It's well yes. cooked. Um, very goth name though, Hell's Gates. Hell's Gates. Hell's Gates. Welcome to Hell's Gates, the name of my goth nightclub. Yes. Um, it's like the foundry but – But goth. But goth and not filled with plebs It doesn't look like an RS. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Tim. <laughs> He's not going to listen. I hope not. <laughs> Extreme winds and rain, sleet and storms constantly battered the harbour, making it an unbelievably rough and miserable place to be imprisoned. The headquarters of the penal colony was to be on Sarah Island, 30 kilometres away from Hell's Gates, which was a tiny little dot of an island in the middle of the water between the harbour and the mainland. So the conditions on Sarah Island were horrendous. All the prisoners there were secondary offenders, men like Pierce who had been transported and committed enough crimes on Van Diemen's land to warrant harsher punishment. They worked long hours in essentially slave labour conditions, mostly preoccupied with logging timber to be used for shipbuilding. So the commander of the colony was a man named Lieutenant John Cuthbertson, who, under instructions from Governor Sorrell, worked the convicts to the bone. So the plan basically was for the convicts to be constantly working, constantly active, I guess, so they would be so tired and worn down that they couldn't escape or commit any crime. Are you taking selfies? I was taking an Instagram video to show that I was in charge of recording this just in case it goes wrong. But I think you're right. Like it's like work them to the bone so they're too tired to give a shit about anything else other than just like sleeping. Yeah, and And working. And because like you know when you're so tired like and you have to do something, you've just got no choice but to like only think of like Mm -hmm. what you've got going on. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever been logging timber Oh no, no. 12 hours I have not in the experienced freezing cold and to rain the tide. extent of what these people encountered, but I can sure tell you yesterday and the day before at work. Man, they work me at like a convict in that place. <laughs> <laughs> it was all just lashes and misery. Uh, it was pretty miserable though. I mean, sure. Um, so, yes, any wrongdoing on the island was punishable by 14 days solitary confinement or Ugh. up to 100 lashes. Jesus. Cuthbertson was – You'd inf- have no blood left. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> I'm sure people died. Um, so Cuthbertson was considered a sadist by the convicts in the colony and he loved to give people a good lashing. He was like, wait, hey, are your shoelaces untied? Lashing. That's a lashing. That's a lashing. <laughs> are you not smiling at that, work? Lashing. That's a lashing. Oh, you bet that's a lesson. Oh, you bet that's a lesson. Uh, Pierce arrived there on August of 1822 um, and he managed to make pals with a man named Alexander Dalton on the boat trip over. So the prisoners were searched and supplied with uniforms which were inexplicably canary yellow. I don't know what the – no style on these penal colonies, honestly. Canary yellow is a hard colour for lots of people to pull off. Especially miserable decaying convicts, convicts. in the rain. <laughs> They're probably like, this just does not this go with my skin tone. Going. I'm a winter. <laughs> <laughs> um, I only look good in rust, not yellow. <laughs> Apparently I'm an autumn. I don't know how to – I don't really know what – Well, the- Georgia Wrigley, friend of the podcast, she was like, when you – because like I bought this like – you know that orange – the rusty orange dress that I bought – she was like, mm, yeah, Jess is such an autumn. <laughs> She's like browns and rusts and reds, just like, mm, love it. Guys, send us an email letting us know what colour you are. Are you a winter? Are you a spring? Are you a summer? I want to know. 
Let us know. Anyway, back to anyway, the miserable cannibals. Um, I was miserable. about to say miserable cannibals. <laughs> miserable convicts. Well, well, well. So the uniforms were like incredibly thin and really unsuited to the crazy weather on Sarah Islands and supplies to the island were erratic thanks to the weather conditions and the difficulties of passing through Hell's Gates. So ration levels could vary wildly with prisoners often working hours of hard labour on starvation starvation rations. Um, Rheumatism and dysentery were frequent and the prisoners were often wet and freezing, being almost constantly exposed to the weather, both when they were working and in their makeshift accommodation. Buildings, many of the buildings on the island were still under construction. So day in the life of a Sarah Island convict, the bell would ring at 6am and the convicts would be called to muster to be counted by Lieutenant Cuthbertson and given their work assignment for the day. So if you were good or in Cuthbertson's favour, you would be assigned to work somewhere in the gardens or somewhere on the island. And if you were bad or just not a pal of Cuthbertson, you were sent to the jetty, searched for food or anything that could help you escape and sent off in a rowboat to row from the island to the harbour where you would go on to work all day, clapped in irons, logging around Kelly's Basin or the Gordon River. Sounds wonderful. Yeah, well, Alexander Pierce thought it was a bit (laughs) shitheaded. He's like... He's no, like, you know what? I'm not, not super into this. this. I'm not into <laughs> it. Is it just me or are these conditions horrible? horrible. <laughs> um, so he found himself in a gang of eight like-minded gentlemen working around Kelly's Basin, chopping down and processing hue and pine that was then sent to mainland Tassie to be used in shipbuilding. There they talked about essentially nothing but escape. So the gang was made up of Pierce, um, an Englishman named Robert Greenhill, his mate Matthew Travers, and they had both wound up on Sarah Island after trying to steal a schooner in Hobart to escape from the island. What's a schooner? A, a ship. Oh, right. A big old ship. They tried to steal <laughs> a schooner of beer <laughs> and they were going to float away. <laughs> they were going to float That's away from the thinking. island in a schooner. I was like, how? <laughs> you know, I'm sure they could make it work. Maybe. Um, Be like Tim Gunn and make it work, dolls. Make it work. Make it um, work. Uh, Pierce's mate, Alexander Dalton, was also part of the squad. Um, Thomas Bodenham, who had been sent to Sarah Island on a charge of assault. William Kennelly, who had been sentenced to Sarah for absconding. John Mather, who went, uh, who had forged a money order of £15. And a man who was named either William or Edward Brown, who went by the nickname of Little Brown. So you can be sure that he was like six and a half feet tall. Yeah. Um, and his crime was the most heinous of all already. He told, stole two shirts that were owned by his master. Fucking sadist. <laughs> so, <laughs> so here we clearly have a gang of the worst criminals, most of whom who had absconded. And also the whitest sounding guys. Oh, every white name. William, John, Edward. Thomas. <laughs> the white gang is here. Um, so... Yeah, they'd all had some kind of experience basically of absconding, some by running into the bush and some by attempted grand theft schooner. Um, And they're all there working to the bone on a penal colony designed to be inescapable, hatching out an escape plan. So they were kind of motivated, like they were like, yeah, this plan could totally work because eight other convicts had escaped just after the colony had opened in January of 1822. They did all die horribly in the bush of starvation or were murdered by aboriginals but they did technically escape jess just moved her microphone one millimeter to the left and she was like (gasps) no no because like never mind never mind okay so the initial plan was not to go the overland route into the wilds of van diemen's land but to steal a whale boat and sail away from the island i thought you were gonna say steal a whale (laughs) 
We're just gonna climb on, like strategically placed, yeah. like around the whale. One like clutching onto the feet. <laughs> Hold your breath, boys. <laughs> She's gone down. We're going to Antarctica. Um, so Greenhill, as a former sailor, had knowledge of sailing and geography and navigation and stuff, but the rest of the convict pals did not. So escape plan phase one came into effect on September 20, 1822. So a ship with a boatload of whale oil was to be coming through Hell's Gates that day. The plan was to steal the ship and its provisions and sneak out under cover of night to avoid being seen. So they were working with only one overseer that day, a man by the name of Constable Logan, who they all reckoned they could take in a fight. But a significant problem arose a couple of days before the plan was to be executed, as Greenhill, the only one with any nautical knowledge, was sent to a different work group. But no matter, the other seven would overpower Logan, row to where a boat was anchored, commandeer it, go pick up Greenhill from his new workstation, destroy that boat, row up to Hell's Gates in a different boat, steal the ship with a whale oil, and hi-ho silver away. Hi-ho silver. <laughs> so the day the escape arrived... Arrived, So they rode out to the basin as usual. They worked for a few hours and when it came time for breakfast, they jumped Logan, stripped him of all of his possessions and left him tied to a tree. I'm so sorry. I'm so jumpy. I'm like, <laughs> I'm freaking out. Everything's fine, I know. <sighs> So they headed to the whale boat and rode on out to Greenhill's workstation some 11 kilometres away at Coalhead. One man stayed with the boat while Pierce Greenhill and the rest of the crew headed to the miners' huts and stole everything they could get their hands on. They headed back to the boats, commandeering the larger whale boat that was anchored there and set out. But aghast, a series of fires lit up along the shoreline, signals from the overseers of the workstation that an escape had taken place. If word got out that they, have es- that they had escaped by boat, surely other boats would be sent to block their passage through the gates and they would be up Shit's Creek. So instead, they sailed the boat always inland via a creek, destroyed it and then headed out into the bush, burdened with the supplies they had stolen earlier. So they're kind of like, mm, right. Not going to plan exactly and now we don't really know where we are and we don't really know where we're going. So they knew that they had to head east away from Coalhead in the harbour. But while Pierce and the other absconders had experience of the wilderness around Hobart, this was a whole other kettle of fish. So they headed northeast towards Mount Sorrel, arriving there by around three in the afternoon. They ascended the mountain and proceeded cautiously over it, hiding themselves as much as possible in the comparatively barren scrubland, fearing that telescopes from Macquarie Harbour were tracking their every move. They were sure that the brutal Cuthbertson would send a contingent of soldiers after them. But Cuthbertson did not. Soldiers were in limited, limited supply on the harbour and the last batch of escapees died horrible violent deaths in the bush. Why would this lot be any different? So when night fell, the crew set up camp on the high ridge line of the mountain, lit a small fire and allowed themselves to eat a meager portion of the provisions they had stolen earlier in the day. One watched while the others slept. The next day, they continued east, keeping to the ridge line. They descended the eastern side of Mount Sorrel in the mid-morning, continuing through the rough terrain, presumably glad that they were no longer in danger of being seen via telescope. So the terrain they were travelling through was quite rough. I would now like to quote Paul Collins, the man who wrote the book that we got all this intel from so the area they were traversing was dominated by myrtle beach as far as they were concerned it was an alien landscape full of almost impenetrable scrub through which they would have had to cut a path to make their way through at ground level the beach forest is a twilight world cool damp and still in a mature rainforest these trees form a dense canopy that can vary in height from 7 to 36 meters above the ground The ground is littered with rotten fallen trees and branches. There are great festoons of vines and mosses, as well as large and small fern trees, one of the few species that can grow in this closed atmosphere. End quote. 
So the just to give a little bit more of a picture, the forests in like the west of Tasmania are like primeval, like, you know, before the continent split apart, dinosaur Jurassic forest. Like it's – you could see like a Brachiosaurus just like poking its head on through. It's very old, very dense, very rough, difficult terrain. And these, you know, eight yahoos are wandering through it. <laughs> They're like, Boys weekend. They're yeah. like, oh, I'm from Merry Old Island and I've spent some time in the wilderness of Hobart and now I'm in – I don't know what's going on with my accent. Yeah. <laughs> Where's she going? What's her I don't story? Know what, I don't know. Yeah, Hello. Right. Hello. Hello. Um, I'm, a, I'm a person of the world. Um, yeah, and they, they had no supplies. They didn't really know where they were going. They didn't have a plan. And the walk would have been just exhausting and they would have been covered in cuts and bruises and stuff from all the various vegetation. So around three days into the walk from Macquarie Harbour – um, they would have walked past a location called Darwin's Crater, which is a remnant of where a comet hit some 750,000 years ago. Presumably they did not know what it was, let alone give a shit. <laughs> um, and they were about to cross into even tougher country. So on the way towards Andrew River, the forest becomes thick with a plant known as horizontal scrub, so-called because it literally grows horizontally. So to quote Collins again, the main stem grows vertically until it is forced to lean under its own weight and then it spreads out, forming a thick tangle of horizontal branches. The process is repeated over and over as further stems grow upwards and then bend under their own weight. There is simply no way you can move through it or stand upright in it. There is no way of boring a path through it without an axe and much exertion. Even trying to hack a path is often unsuccessful. You can attempt to crawl beneath it, but here you find uneven ground and a clammy, slippery, slimy, wet surface with fallen logs, mosses and debris. As you crawl along, the stems grab at your clothes and skin. It is soul-destroying and no matter what you do, you quickly tire and become disoriented. End quote. Sounds like a... Just sounds like a grand old time. Whale of a time. Just like a nice little nature high, get a few Insta pics. Sounds like my worst <laughs> goddamn nightmare. I think it sounds like most people's worst goddamn nightmare. <laughs> yeah, but like... <laughs> But, like, especially worse. Yeah, but, like, mm. you'd be like, can we just stop? I've got to, like, fix my makeup before we go on. I'm not that tizzy, but I'm a bit tizzy. Anyway. <laughs> so, by day four, if getting fucked over by every plant possible wasn't enough, the escapees faced another issue. Little Brown, who was the oldest member of the group, couldn't keep up with the rest of the crew. Food was running low and there was not a likely prospect of getting more as they were literally in the middle of nowhere. They had begun to ascend the engineer range but underestimated how hard the climb would be and was stuck there through nightfall, and a crisis was a brewing. Some of the cr- group wanted to go back to Macquarie Harbour, thinking probably quite rightly that a hundred lashes was preferable to the situation they were currently in. Probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Brown, Kennelly and Dalton were the complainers. Greenhill, Travers, Pierce, Boddenham and Mather wanted to keep going, not wanting to give up their one chance at liberty because of a tricky walk. They made it down the range and decided to have a rest for the day. Starving, exhausted, miserable, freezing and wet, morale was pretty low. They were bickering with each other about who should go and get firewood. Kennelly ended up going off and getting some tinder and he kept some of it as a reserve for himself as he was apparently making provisions to head back to Macquarie Harbour. On this night, apparently... Like, thanks guys, it's been so fun. It's been great. <laughs> I've had a really good time but I just think that my path lies elsewhere. <laughs> uh, Can I get a reference from <laughs> Um, so on this night, apparently Kennelly made some crack about being so hungry that he could eat a piece of a man and Greenhill, who was the leader of the group was like, you don't say piece of man, huh? 
So. Indeed. So on the seventh day, Greenhill like casually like floated the idea of cannibalism just to like see what the only guys thought of it, you know. He was like, hey guys, a hey uh, random thought that wasn't triggered by anything, certainly not the starvation that is currently killing us all. Right. What do you guys think about eating human flesh? And everybody was like, not, um, not great. Not overly stoked, like not on my bucket list. Um, and then Greenhill was like, Oh, I've seen it done before. It tastes like pork. And Mather was like, okay, that's a horrifying fact, but it's also murder, you know. We're <laughs> criminals, but, you know, we're stealing shirt criminals, not murder. <laughs> stealing shoes and shirts. Like, yeah. Mm, mm, you know, we're fashionable criminals. <laughs> it's all about the nuke. Exactly. And Greenhill was like, well, if we all have a hand in killing the person, then we're all equally guilty. And everyone's like, all righty. Sound logic, can't argue with that. Let's go get this pork. So Pierce, Greenhill, Travers and Mather had a discussion essentially about the pros and cons of cannibalism and then decided who should fall. So Greenhill nominated Dalton because while on Sarah Island, Dalton had volunteered to be a flogger, which was one of the convicts that doled out the lashings to the other convicts. No one had any qualms with that logic and the plan was put in place. So I'm going to quote again. When we stopped at night, Dalton, Brown and Kennelly had a fire by themselves and a little break wind. About three o'clock in the morning, Dalton was asleep. Greenhill got up, took an axe and struck him on the head with it, which killed him as he never spoke afterwards. Travis took a knife, cut his throat with it and bled him. We then dragged the body to a distance, cut off his clothes, tore his insides out and cut off his head. Then Mather, Travers, and Greenhill put his heart and liver on the fire to broil, but then took them off and cut them before they were right hot. They asked the rest if they would have any, but we would not eat any that night. Next morning, the body was cut up and divided into equal parts, which we took and proceeded on our journey a little after sunrise. End quote. Okay, sweet. So first cannibalism (laughs) is done. Everybody's had a bit of protein, a bit of iron. They got some energy for the journey. No carbohydrates. No carbs. Um, because of the terrain, they have to like walk in single file with one person up front clearing the trail for the ones behind who are carrying all the provisions. So Greenhill's up front chopping. Kennelly and Brown are like, no worries, guys. You just uh, lead the way. We're here. We're carrying our provisions. We are definitely not going to run away. Um, definitely not. Definitely not. Then they turn around and leg it back to Macquarie Harbour. Um, they have nothing with them to sustain them for this back journey apart from a few bits of Dalton. Um, but they do manage to make it back there alive on the 12th of October, 1822. Unfortunately for them, they arrived back starving and exhausted to a brutal penal colony with only prison rations to eat and no real hospital. So they both die about a week later. So we've got three down and five to go. So the remaining squad, who I will now refer to as the cannibal crew. Cannibal crew. Cannibal crew. Considered going after Brown and Kennelly lest their cannibalism be discovered. But they assumed that they would die in the woods. So they pressed on. They were heading now towards the Franklin River. Although not covered in the same dangerous vegetation, passage was still tricky and the river river was likely to be very high and raging due to all the rain. They needed to cross the river and they eventually found a point where it could be traversed. As Travers and Boddenham couldn't swim, the plan was to cut down two large trees and make a sort of of bridge, but the trees kept being swept away by the current. Instead, the three that could swim towed the two that couldn't, holding a wattle pole of 30 to 40 feet in length. After crossing the river, they settled on the eastern bank and had a fire and a kip. From there, they had to cross the Deception Range, from the top of which they could see Macquarie, Har- Macquarie Harbour. Um, as the crow flies, they had only travelled around 28 kilometres over 12 days. And once again, they were facing almost impenetrable wilderness. 
At one point, Mather misplaced the tinder he had been carrying inside his shirt to keep dry, and Travers raised an axe at him and said he would kill him if it was not found. Thankfully, Mather found it, and they had a fire when they set up camp. The next morning, they woke literally close to death from hypothermia and had to decide which direction to go from the ranges. It's not precisely known which route they took because they didn't know where the fuck they were going. Mm. Um, But the author of the book puts up a pretty decent justification for the fact that they went northeast. Um, It doesn't really matter because they're still fucking about in the rough shit, whether it's north or south, Um, but mm, probably northeast. Um, So they stopped in a swampy area for a night and it's – about time for the next act of cannibalism. You ready? Yep. <sighs> so the five cannibal crew are desperately hungry. Pierce and Mather allegedly were out fetching firewood while Greenhill and Travers decided where their next meal should come from. Boddenham was standing alone, warming himself by the fire. Greenhill took it upon himself again to be the executioner, and by this point, everyone must have been thinking that he's maybe enjoying the whole cannibalism thing a little too much. Everybody's like, we need to survive. And Greenhill's like, Boy, do we. <laughs> Boy, do we need to Boy, eat people I to survive. Boy, do murder. <laughs> so Pierce and Mather arrive back and are like, whoa, what? You guys killed him? Like, that's so crazy. Anyway, save me a piece of leg. Um, so former butcher Travers once again bleeds the body out and does all the freaky shit to get the body ready for consumption. Ugh. They ate the heart and liver that night and separated the remainder into equal portions for the journey. The next day, they set out walking through marshy ground for three days through the Loddon Plains. There was four down, four to go. Greenhill and Travis had been friends since before arriving at Sarah Island, so they formed a mini squad, possibly brought together by how good they both were at cannibalism. Pierce and Mather <laughs> also decided to form a I Promise Not to Nominate You to Be Eaten Next Alliance, which created like a- Like Survivor. Like Survivor, Exactly. Except not at all like anything that would occur on Survivor. This created a fair amount of tension between the two pairs, each suspicious that they were planning on killing the other. So they had reached the King William range and began ascending. So the issue with cannibalism, other than the fact that it's cannibalism, is that people aren't very high in carbohydrate. So it doesn't really... And what I've learned recently is that your brain works on carbohydrates. <laughs> is that because you're doing the keto diet? Attempting the keto diet. Um, I love carbohydrates. Yeah, same. I also um, love sugar. I'm not as keen on sugar, but I would eat oh. bread for every meal. Yeah. Wouldn't eat people. Definitely not. Definitely not. not I, I liked carbohydrates too much to become a cannibal. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> not a cannibal. Not a cab- Not a cannibal. Loves <laughs> loves carbs too much. Would people be keto? Um, I'm not going to say because I don't want to condone cannibalism. Okay. But it's like high fat. It's like a high fat, low carb, low sugar diet. I think people are keto. Um, yuck. Gross. I feel sick now. Anyway. Um, so they, even though they were like consuming something, it wasn't really giving them the energy that they needed to continue. So it wasn't long before the four remaining members of the cannibal crew were starving again. So at the King William Ranges, they saw for the first time kangaroo, emu and other non-human food sources, but realistically they were too weak to hunt them. At one point, Mather made a weird concoction out of ferns and drank it, possibly to use as a digestive aid from all the human flesh he had clogging up his insides. This made him very ill and he began to throw up. So like a lion chasing after a wounded buffalo, Greenhill descended with the axe trying to attack Mather when he was too weak to defend himself. Okay, don't eat the sick person. No, that's like cannibalism 101. 101. 
don't eat the person who is ill. That's so – that's how you get the illness, right? That's how you become a zombie. <laughs> um, Mather did manage to fight back and push Greenhill off him, but he couldn't really retaliate against Greenhill because he was the leader and the only one with any navigational or survival skills. So they continued their, on their journey towards a creek where they would set up camp. After the attack, Mather was incredibly suspicious and was convinced that Greenhill and Travers – Travers? Travers. Travers. Travers have uh, made a plan to kill him and Pierce. He goes up to Pierce and he's like, man, I'm, I promise you, you have to promise me if you know of any plans, you know, we'll protect each other. We're, we've got each other's backs. And Pierce is like, absolutely. <laughs> sure. You are thing. my friend and I will look out for you. Friendship only goes so far before you're eating people in the wilderness. Yeah, look, when when you're in a cannibal crew, it's every man for themselves. <laughs> so um, Pierce had already began to plot with Greenhill and Travers about dinner. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yuck. So sitting around the fire at camp that evening, Mather tried to distim- distance himself from the others, but, I mean, it's three against one and the guy is constantly throwing up from drinking ferns. So it wasn't much of a fight. Um, Pierce, Greenhill and Travers all jumped Mather, dragging him to the ground and struck him on the head with the axe. He was then, of course, bled out, dissected, cooked and eaten. So since Greenhill and Travers had formed an alliance, Pierce was obviously the next on the list of victims. For Pierce, the rule was always, when in doubt, abscond, and the flora of the area was beginning to look more similar to the wilderness around the settlements near Hobart. He was certain they were nearing some kind of civilization and that he could make a run for it. But they were not as close to settlement as Pierce thought. Um, but having crossed the treacherous west, they had finally reached the comparatively gentler central, central highlands. So incredibly conveniently for Pierce, on this leg of the journey, Travers was bitten by a snake. So Travers implored the other two to go on without him, but Greenhill refused. And Pierce was like, yeah, no way, man. We'll stay with you till the end. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll totally just wait with you while you almost die of snake bite. So they wait for five days until Travers is semi-healed enough to walk. Greenhill and Pierce assist him, half dragging him across another mountain range. Um, They crossed the Nive River, Greenhill carrying Travers in the axe and Pierce carrying the scraps of Mather that they had left. They walked for two more days, taking turns dragging Travers until his foot turned black. He had contracted Mm. gangrene. Greenhill and Pierce left Travers passed out by the fire at camp while they go into the bush for a bit and decided whether or not they were going to eat him. When they got back, Travers was awake and allegedly begged the other two to kill him. This time, Greenhill looked on while Pierce went at Travers with the axe. Apparently, Greenhill wasn't so into cannibalism when it was his friend that was being eaten as he was pretty distressed watching Pierce cut him up. That's pretty convenient. Yeah, like, oh, now you think cannibalism's wrong? Now you're sad that somebody's getting murdered with an axe and eaten when it's your friend? Um, but they, stay, they still stayed at camp for two days gorging on Travis's carcass. They continued on, convinced they were close to a settlement, but they were a lot further away than they realised. Pierce thought they were near the Table Mountain area where there was an Irish convict settlement that he was aware of, but they were about 40 kilometres southwest of there. And as the days wore on and their already, you know, not great constitutions deteriorated, Greenhill and Pierce became more and more suspicious of each other. Greenhill was armed, Pierce was not. They kept their distance during the day and slept far away from each other at night. One night, both men were faking sleep while P- when Pierce heard Greenhill rise, axe in hand. At that moment, Pierce pretended to wake up, acting like he hadn't noticed the attempt. 
Pierce then decided that he either had to give Greenhill the slip or grab the axe and kill Greenhill before he was killed himself. Neither man was brave enough to sleep for fear the other would attack, so they each tried to stay awake, but Pierce was the one who eventually won out. He took the axe from underneath Greenhill's head while he was sleeping and chopped him through the head. Pierce was now the sole survivor. He chopped off Greenhill's leg and took it with him on the next part of the journey, munching along as he went. And I definitely oh, imagine can like... not say the word munching? Munching. No. Just imagine like the cracking sounds. Oh, and fuck's sake. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Um, I like, you know, as usual, when you spend so long reading about it, you're like fully di- desensitized. I feel queasy as shit right now. Sorry. Um, we had a big breakfast too. <laughs> like food is not. Oh. what I want to be thinking about. Oh, Not that it's really God, food. I feel ill. Um, so he managed to survive for another week and by now starving again, amazingly, he came across a flock of sheep. He had been walking now for 49 days with nothing but the odd bit of his mates to sustain him. <laughs> he had worked for a time as a shepherd, as I mentioned, and he knew how to herd sheep. He managed to corral them, grabbed one, slit its throat and began eating it when a man came up to him and told him essentially like, Rack off my sheep. <laughs> Your mind? <laughs> Rack off. Excuse me? Um, but the man was a convict, a mate of Pierce's named Maguire. Maguire was fairly shocked to see Pierce starving and half mad eating one of his sheep raw. And Pierce gave him the Cliffsnose version of the escape and Maguire took pity on him and took him back to his residence to look after him a bit. So he stayed with Maguire for five days, was fed normal food, slept and regained a bit of his health. But Pierce had to move on eventually as he was technically a wanted criminal. He headed south towards the Derwent River. He stayed 11 days with Maguire's brother, then headed off to a secret hut he had built when he was last on the run. He came across two other absconding prisoners and, as was now the custom, they formed a gang for a bit. <laughs> so they stayed together for around seven That's weeks. That's like us being like, we should, we should, we should start a podcast. <laughs> it's like if you go like hiking at Mount Kutha and you see somebody else walking down the other lane and you're like, hey, do you guys want to rely on each other for survival? <laughs> Hey, complete stranger, how about we spend the next seven weeks of our lives together eating kangaroos and living like animals in the wilderness? Sounds great. Sounds fun. I'd love to do that. (laughs) (laughs) So unbeknownst to Pierce, um, both of these men had a 10-pound bounty on their head. So on the 11th of January, 1823, a party of soldiers came across the prisoners who were encamped near Jericho and shot at one of Pierce's new mates who had tried to make a run for it. Outnumbered, Pierce had no chance and had no choice but to go back with the soldiers to the barracks in Jericho. From there, he was taken back to Hobart Jail. Once again locked up in prison, Pierce confessed the whole sorry tale, cannibalism and all, to the magistrate and chaplain Reverend Notwood. Notwood's reaction to the whole thing was essentially like, "Uh uh-huh, cool story, bro. (laughs) (laughs) He believed that Pierce had concocted the story to cover for his mates who were still at large in the bush, which like, all righty, but why would you be like, yeah, Yeah, I I ate them. them. (laughs) (laughs) Why would you not just be like, we separated and I don't know where they are. are. No. That seems a bit far-fetched. A bit extreme. (laughs) A bit extreme. Um, Pierce was then sent back to Macquarie Harbour. So he was on the run for a total of 113 days. And for a man like Pierce, being sent back to Macquarie Harbour would have been a punishment worse than death. He was not a man who could really tolerate any kind of punishment. Um, But when he came back to Sarah Island, he was a dead set fucking legend. Everybody was like, Piercy. What's up? Tell us the tale. I ate everyone. (laughs) Yeah, well, he told some people that he, you know, ate everyone. And then other people who was like, no, man, I just survived out there. 
I'm just so hardcore. I'm just so tough, you know. So uh, there were rumours on the island that he was a man-eater, oh, but nothing was confirmed. Oh, <laughs> He's a man-eater. <laughs> Um, so on his second stay on Sarah Island, Pierce became, became mates with a lad by the name of Thomas Cox, who had been sent to Sarah Island for absconding. Cox and Pierce worked together in a logging gang and Cox begged Pierce to escape with him repeatedly. Um, it didn't go well the first time. Pierce was like, fuck no kid. I nearly got eaten about 50 times out there. But he started to come around to the idea when Cox revealed that he was creating like a little cache of things that he could use for an escape, like a knife and things like that. He was like, oh, maybe this kid's legit. Maybe he knows. Um, maybe it's not going to be like last time. Yeah, but Pierce became 100% convinced that an escape was a good idea when another convict stole one of his shirts. So oh. loss of possessions meant 25 lashes from Cuthbertson. And I guess Pierce thought that starving to death in the Tasmanian wilderness for a second time was a better deal. Yeah. So Cox and Pierce executed escape plan number two. If you thought the first escape plan was poorly thought out, this one was even worse. <laughs> so same setup. The overseer of the logging gang was once again Constable Logan, who really should have, you know, had some privileges taken away from him. But um, Cox quietly used his axe to bend the iron shackle around Pierce's ankle when Logan's back was turned. The two managed to escape. One overseer was really not capable of keeping track of a large amount of men in a dark rainforest in all in different places doing different jobs. So it was a few hours before the escape was actually noticed. This time, Pierce took the role of leader, leading Cox through the wilderness with which he was now familiar, where they remained for around seven days before they were satisfied that they were not being looked for. They were still on the banks of Macquarie Harbour. By now, Cox had found out the real story of Pierce's escape and wanted to know what human flesh tastes like. Oh. Pierce told him that it tasted like pork. Jesus oh, no. fucking Christ. Cox trusted Pierce and frankly idolised him a little, but that trust was broken when Pierce sexually assaulted him one night. It was sadly a fairly common occurrence on the penal colony and in Van Diemen's land as a whole, as there was a disproportionate number of men in comparison to women. This really broke the spell for Cox that he and Pierce were some, some sort of partnership, but he had no choice but to stay with him as Pierce was now the one who knew the bush. Without Pierce, he'd be dead. So they had set up camp on the southern bank of the King River. The plan was to head up north along the west coast and then onto whatever settlement they could find, possibly Launceston. The escape was more by impulse than planning, so the route really wasn't set in stone. And on the bank of the river, the two men got into a huge argument. Cox couldn't swim and Pierce had experienced enough of the burden of trying to get somebody who couldn't swim to the other side of a river. He was furious. He didn't want to go the inland route, knowing too well what danger lay that way. He told Cox that he would, would have never escaped with him had he known that he couldn't swim. After the argument, Cox busied himself getting the fire going. He was frightened of Pierce and knew his reputation as a killer and a cannibal. Cox planned to cook up some of the fish that he and Pierce had managed to snag, but behind him, Pierce was fuming. He didn't want to be saddled with someone who would slow him down. He wanted to be free. Cox was kneeling by the fire and picked Pierce picked up the axe and hit Cox over the head, but the axe glanced off. He struck twice more with two blunt hits and left Cox there, screaming, conscious but in agony. Pierce headed off as if to make his way across the river, but Cox begged Pierce to come back and finish the job. Pierce obliged, smashing the axe into his head, finally killing oh, him. far out. Then Pierce started the fire. Oh, Jesus. He stripped Cox of his clothing, cut off his hands, decapitated the body, and placed the head in a nearby tree. He carved up the torso, ate part of Cox's arm and fell asleep on the bank of the river. As Next, you do. As you do, just cash. Just, ugh. 
The next morning, he changed into Cox's clothes, ate a bit of the perfectly good fish that they had caught and began gathering up the bits of Cox that he could carry in his swag. Ellen, like, lifted her arm up as if to be like, don't, don't cry for me, Hutchinson. <laughs> yeah, it was Vita Vita, wasn't it? Um, and he shoved a bit into his pockets for good measure. So let me, like, this escape had in some respects gone a lot better than the other one they managed to come across like a camp of hunters or whatever and robbed them for their food and stuff like that so he had food he killed and ate cocks because he wanted to this was not a survival situation he this was, was hungry a, for pork he just wanted that pork baby um <laughs> so he had a north for about five miles but you know what his heart just wasn't in the escape anymore he didn't know how long he'd be roaming around in the bush looking for a settlement and he'd already eaten most of cocks so he didn't know where his next meal was coming from so he turned around and headed back to the scene of the crime, the King River. He swam back across to the south side and headed to the banks of Macquarie Harbour. He waited there for a time and eventually saw a ship. He lit a fire to make a signal and the ship came to shore. He was immediately recognised as Pierce the cannibal escapee and he told the pilot of the ship, who was a man named Lucas, that Cox had drowned in the King River. Yeah. Yeah. A likely story. <laughs> Lucas had him clapped in irons and searched. Inside Pierce's pocket, they found the chunk of Cox's flesh that he had stashed there. <sighs> Pierce told Lucas that he had brought it to prove that Cox had died, and Lucas was like, sure, cannibal man with flesh in your pocket, I believe you. <laughs> the ship sailed back to Sarah Island, and Cuthbertson had seen the smoke on the shore and ordered a ship to take him to Lucas's ship. So on board, he began questioning Pierce, who again said that he bought the piece of flesh to prove that Cox had died. Cuthbertson was like, okay, so why are you wearing his clothes? And Pierce was like, well, he wouldn't be needing them anymore. Then Cuthbertson said, tell me, Pierce, did you do the deed? And Pierce was like, okay, you got me. Oh, Oh, look. You're twisting my arm. Yeah, old habits die hard, you know. (laughs) So the next morning, Pierce was sent in chains with the coxswain to locate Cox's body. The coxswain described the scene thusly. The head was away, the hands cut off, the bowels were torn out and the greater part of the breech and thighs gone, as were the calf of the legs and the fleshy part of the arms. Smith had uh, Smith the coxswain had asked how Pierce could do such a thing, to which Pierce replied, no person can tell what he will do when driven by hunger, which is bullshit because he had food. He's just a fucking weirdo. <laughs> So Cuthbertson decided that he needed to interview Pierce to get the full story of everything. And, you know, I'll, I'll reiterate that there were rumours that he was a cannibal, but people, lots of people basically didn't believe the story because it was so horrific and, like, fucked. They were like, no way, man. Like, he's messed in the head, but, like, come on, eating people. Um, but it became very evident that he was not lying now. So the interview with Cuth- Cuthbertson corroborated much of what Pierce had told Reverend Knopwood previously – And the absolute best part of it was that it took place in the penal colony hospital because Pierce was suffering from food poisoning. (laughs) Or people poisoning, I guess. Yeah. It's not really food poisoning. No. I mean, you shouldn't have been eating it in the first place because there is a disease you can get. Yeah. From flesh. (laughs) Yeah. Because you ain't meant to be. You're not supposed to eat people. Um, so Pierce was kept in isolation and heavily chained at Sarah Island until he was sent back to Hobart to stand trial for the murder of Thomas Cox. So the trial began at the Supreme Court of Hobart on June 20th, 1824. It was the 33rd case to ever be tried at the court. Pierce, for some reason, pled not guilty. That makes sense. So the reporter at the Hobart... such a white guy thing. Uh, yeah, I had a piece of him in my pocket, (laughs) but that doesn't prove anything. (laughs) 
What's she going to... Well, I lead what? you directly to the body, which was all cut I up. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. That was a bear. <laughs> One of them Tasmanian bears. One of those Tassie you? bears. Put that head in the tree. <laughs> it wasn't it me. So the reporter at the Hobart Gazette who watched the trial, like, literally had the best day of his life that day. Um, he said, and I will quote again, the circumstances which were understood to have accompanied the above crime have long been associated with extreme horror. Report had associated the prison with cannibals, and we confess that on this occasion our eyes glanced in feelfulness at the being who stood before a retributive judge laden with the weight of human blood and believed to have banqueted on human flesh. Banqueted. Banqueted. Like he like throws out like a red velvet like tablecloth, sets up some candles. <laughs> So the judge and the prosecutor didn't want to focus too much on like sensational kind of stories of cannibalism from the first escape. They were just focusing on the murder of Cox. So And Pierce had no one acting in his defence. So the prosecutor, the prosecutor told the jury about Pierce's confessions about the first escape and about the circumstances of the Cox murder, including the fact that Pierce had confirmed to Cuthbertson that he had committed the crime and that he was willing to die for it. Several witnesses were called up, including the coxswain who had first viewed the murder scene. He talked about how Pierce led him straight to the crime scene, about the brutality of it all and all the weird stuff like the head being separated from the body. Needless to say, the evidence was pretty damning and it was no surprise the jury found Pierce guilty for the murder. Pierce was sentenced to be hung from the neck until dead and then afterwards his body would be delivered to the surgeons for dissection, which was an uncommon additional humiliation given to only the worst murderers. He was to be hung on Monday, the 19th of July, 1824. Happy birthday to me. <laughs> um, he was awoken early that day, served a good breakfast and led out to the jail yard. A nice-sized crowd had formed to watch the proceedings. The priest who attended him, Reverend Connolly, read out a long confession of Pierce's crimes, wherein Pierce admitted to the murder of Cox as well as the crimes of his first escape, although it was a slightly more PG... It was written by a priest. It was not as, you know, gory as it could have been. Yeah. With the confession read, Pierce stepped up to the drop. All the traditional execution things happened, cap, rope, etc., and the ex- executioner released the trap door. A sketch of Pierce's dead body was made, which you can view online if you so desire, and from there, Pierce's body was wheeled onto a trolley to the hospital for dissection. So the man who undertook the dissection took Pierce's skull as a souvenir. He held onto it for some time before selling it to a man who collected skulls for American phrenologists. Pierce's skull appeared in a book published by American phrenologist Dr. Samuel Morton, who described Pierce as a criminal who succeeded repeatedly in persuading his fellow prisoners to escape with him for the sole purpose of killing him and devouring their flesh. Which I feel like is a very, like, American-like, gotta make it jazzy, gotta make it, you know? (laughs) Gotta give it some zazz. Gotta give it a a little bit of a spin. (laughs) Um, And Pierce's skull now resides in the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. And then we have it. Just some... Alexander Pierce. Good old-fashioned... Good old-fashioned cannibalism. Love it. Look, there's nothing to do in Tasmania. <laughs> well, you would know. <laughs> you fucking live there. You got to, you know, sometimes you got to lash out and get a little bit crazy, you know, just to What's keep the What's the craziest thing you've done in Tasmania so far? The thing you did the other day? Uh, no. Erosion is not the craziest thing. <laughs> <laughs> not the craziest thing I've done in Tasmania by a long shot. Ooh, intrigue. I'm so excited. Um, I will be going down at some point. Yeah, mm. When it's not freezing cold, Jess is going to come and visit and we're not going to eat each other. No. Surprising. I mean, unless we have to. Nah, nah, no, no, thank you. Um, well, 
that's another episode of Murder in the Land of Oz done. We have yeah. one more, two more in Tasmania, and then we are Dunskies, and then on to South Australia. I South hope Australia. nobody was eating. Yeah, I feel really sick, but I think that's also nerves going like, I hope this works. I hope I'm not fucking this up. Um, as we said, if you have any suggestions for the South Australian cases or if you want to move on to the other state, the other states and territories that we haven't covered yet, please send us an email at murderinthelandofoz at gmail.com. You can also get in contact with us on Facebook. We're at Murder in the Land of Oz. You can find us on Instagram. We're getting a lot of action on Instagram at the moment. Action. Um, Action. Love it. Um, as we mentioned before, we do have a Patreon available. So if you would like to donate to the podcast, um, funds from this goes to supporting uh, – basically, look, it, it does cost money for us to do this research. Um, we will be – we are subscribing to uh, newspapers and we do read a lot of literature um, on collecting for our cases. So basically that goes to reimbursing us for the costs that we make. So if you want to support us, you can. And there's different levels and yeah. It's really fun. It is really fun. It's just like a fun hobby or activity. We did a really fun episode. Like we do um, Patreon only content. So we've done like, we did an episode on Jonestown. We've done. um, We did the teacher's pet. So if you you want to familiarize yourself with that case, but you can't because they took it down. They took it down. So you can. We don't have any kind of integrity. We're keeping it up and we'll make people pay for it. Yeah, exactly. Um, we will be doing um, a bonus episode for you. We'll be coming out on this coming Monday. And that's about Jean-Benet Ramsey. Yay, we're finally doing it. And it's the Cliff's Notes version and it's basically just Ellen and I having an argument because we can, because we can. Um, so next episode is um, – so after Monday, which is the bonus episode, it's um, me again and I'm going to be talking about – the pacemaker murder. Noise. Toy. Smart. <laughs> um, anyway, bye. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us. Make sure you are rating and reviewing and subscribing and tell your friends about Murder on the Land of Oz because it's a good time over here. So thanks for having us, guys. Goodbye. Bye. Enjoy a big deal as you enjoy breakfast with great value car cover from Super Value Insurance. Get a great quote and search Super Value Insurance now. This car insurance is underwritten by AXA Insurance DAC. Super Value Financial Services DAC trading as Super Value Insurance is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. You join us on the hollowed turf of our back garden. Sean, 13, is attempting to break his keepy uppy record unbeaten for the last two years. Looking good, Sean. Three more to go. Oh, no. Pitch invader. Late drama here as he's stolen the ball. Adidas Trexit and trainers from Littlewoods, Ireland. <sighs> Own goal by Buster. Shop the brands you love at littlewoodsireland.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.